0: You know, I get up at 5.30. I'm to the gym at 6. I'm back by 7, 7.15. It's still earlier than most people are getting started in their day. I get in an hour or two before the phone starts ringing on um, the days off. You know, I, I'm a morning person, so I'll get up at 5. If you work from 5 to 9, it's half a day right there. Yeah. And um, so I just – I i don't know why I would do that to myself to go back to an office. <laughs> I have thought about um, there have been some storefronts available locally, um, mm-hmm. and I kind of kicked myself pre pandemic. There was this small little seven hundred square foot kind of little commercial building that would have been kind of a you know a cute storefront or something. put my logo on the window, but um, that's the only thing I've thought about is creating an office within walking or biking distance from our home that I can just shut the door, you know, at the end of the day, or I can decide, do I go in? Or if I want to have a client meeting, that's not based out of the house, I can now start to invite clients into a space, you know, but that's really just luxury at this point. And so I, I just, can't see myself working for somebody else (laughs) ever again.
1: This is Inside the Apple Studio, the podcast that details the intersection of architecture and Apple and explores how architects and other design professionals use Apple products in the practice of architecture. With your host, architect Neil Pam. Support for Inside the Apple Studio comes from Monograph, Architects, how do you manage your firm? Are you using dated and clunky software? Are you frustrated using different spreadsheets and never really getting a clear view of the status of your projects? Then let me tell you about Monograph, because they can help. Monograph is online software that is designed by architects for architects. It allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets. It can not only track all of this, but it can do it all in real time. Monograph has an awesome tool called Money Gantt. With it, you can immediately see whether you are under or over budget on a project. Monograph also comes with a tool called Resource, which allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Using this powerful tool, you can easily adjust your projects on a week to week basis. Can your dated and clunky software do that? Monograph makes this easy. Check out all the ways Monograph can help your firm be more productive at monograph.com and be proactive with Monograph. Welcome to Inside the Apple Studio. In this episode, we'll be hearing from an architect that has a client-centered practice that invests in building relationships between himself, his clients, and the builder, that results in design solutions that reflects the client's unique character. He's also someone that gives back, not only to the profession as an adjunct faculty member at an architectural college, but also with his service to a Big Brother, Big Sisters mentoring program in his community. I'd like to welcome architect Daniel Steger to the show. Thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me, Neil.
1: Well, I appreciate you taking your time to to join with us and Let's start off with the first question, which is, what inspired you to become an architect?
0: Hmm. That's a long, long answer. But I think um, I have reflected upon that in the past because that was not kind of my first career choice, you know, as I was thinking about undergraduate majors and things like that. Um, I grew up in a family business in rural Wisconsin, Um, Plymouth, Wisconsin is my hometown, around Sheboygan, Kohler, Wisconsin, Fond du Lac, the so Southeast Wisconsin. And my grandfather after World War II started a, um, it wasn't always a heating and cooling company, but when I worked for the family business, uh, we were heating and cooling contractors, residential installation, um, and furnaces, boilers, AC systems, you know, all kinds of stuff. But Uh, Grandpa George started, um, putting standing seam roofs on, uh, barns and he would do a lot of custom sheet metal fittings for ventilation, uh, milk houses, uh, welding, milk cans, all that kind of stuff. Uh, he was originally a farmer from Minnesota and came to Wisconsin, uh, worked with his cousin in a small hardware store and then um, saw this opportunity and he was just very uh, entrepreneurial and started this family business and so that's now in its third generation my older brother owns and manages that but I was always around things that you could make stuff with so for example you know when our babysitter was the sheet metal break <laughs> in the, <laughs> in, the um, in the fabrication area. Or um, we would make stuff with a spot welder. I mean, all kinds of stuff that you don't let your children do these days. We just plugged in the spot welder and started spot welding sheet metal scraps. And so um, we were always doing stuff. And my dad... You know, of course, if you, you never hired a contractor to do anything. And so we did everything um, ourselves and um, it just was instilled in me. And also when I was a very young kid, um, my mother decided to go to art school um, about an hour, we're about an hour north of Milwaukee. And she started taking art classes at a um, private uh, Cardinal stretch college at the time. And um, I remember her, having to do the color wheels and all these, you know, still life drawings. And um, she would actually <laughs> involve us because um, if she had a drawing that had a large kind of pattern in a certain area, she'd, I remember she did these kind of pointillism drawings uh, in one class and she'd kind of outline where she wanted a certain dot density and she'd pass it down the line to, you know, five six seven eight year old kids and she'd be like here fill this in in this area and so we used to actually help her with her homework but um yeah I think there was always kind of this creative bend and you know um in our family um my father you know he learned the sheet metal trade from his father and he would also take it to kind of an artistic level um uh, we needed a um a decorative front to a raised hearth on our fireplace. And I remember as a kid, he went and got sheet uh, sheets of brass and um, actually created this kind of sunburst out of standing scene metal. And um, unfortunately he wasn't able to bring that when they moved, but um, yeah, he always kind of was thinking about what he could do with stuff just beyond kind of the everyday uh, prosaic stuff that he had to do for work. Uh, and my mother, as well, so that 's kind of where the creative side came from. Um, but why didn 't do that right away i don 't know <laughs> <So> <laughs> i don 't know uh, in my undergrad, um, ultimately, I graduated with um, a government studies major with a German and Spanish minor, and I thought I was going to go into the foreign service. you know I was pretty good at languages um, I had met some people through relatives that were in the Foreign Service, um, and they seemed to have a rather um, exciting lifestyle. Um, but as I started to investigate a little bit more, you know, you really don't get Berlin as your first choice <laughs> or Paris. And um, I don't know if I was willing to put in the time or the, um, uh, yeah, basically put in your time um, in some more out-of-the-way places. Uh, that weren't using my languages. And so I had always just thought about architecture school. Um, and actually after I graduated undergrad, I went overseas for a year on a Fulbright scholarship and I came back and I was like, you know what? I'm done traveling. Um, and at the time the family business needed another family member involved. No one takes care of a family business like family. And so, um, I said I'd give it three years and, um, After three years of working with mom and dad, I said, you know what? Um, I think I need to go on to some other things. And architecture had always been in the back of my mind. And so I actually pursued that. And that's what really brought me to Boston uh, for graduate study. So it was kind of a long trek to get me here. But here I am.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Why MIT why Boston?
0: Well, actually, I didn't. um, I didn't matriculate at MIT right away. I didn't apply there. Um, all I knew, you know, I'd been out of undergrad, I was maybe 25, 26 at the time. Um, and I knew that I didn't want to be in a traditional program where you had to, um, you know, live in a dorm. And, you know, the, I had already gone through all the, the the campus experience and the college experience. And I I, I kind of felt that it at the time that that was a step back. And so what the Boston Architectural Center at the time, now it's the Boston Architectural College, um, offered was to be a full-time student, you had to work full-time, and that was your practice curriculum, and then you had to be matriculated in your academic program at the time as well. And that's really what brought me to Boston was the BAC. And at the time, the BAC was in a transition period, I think I was one of the first uh, students or first classes that was coming in under the master's program. That was a new course of study at the time. They hadn't received their accreditation and they couldn't guarantee that they would, you know, Mm. as they, um, you know, honestly, probably were just trying to say, you know, we'll probably get it. But, you know, we can't guarantee it 100 percent. And the BSC was a very unique place at the time. Um, students would kind of float in and out and it was kind of known for people taking very long periods of time to complete their degrees and um, all challenges that they've really um, solved at this point uh, in, their, um, in their history. But at the time, you know, I, I remember my first class, I had there were three students in the studio with two professors. And it was just an odd ratio. Um, And then my second studio, there were 10 of us, and I would say only two or three of us actually did the work. And so it started to become an issue where, you know, I was a little older. um, I was a little more motivated than some of the other students, and I wasn't getting the kind of cohort experience that I had hoped for. And so I felt I was kind of out there on my own. And uh, one of the Architects at the firm that I was working for um, suggested that they kind of she understood my personality, what I was looking for, and she said, "Why don't you apply to MIT? I mean, you're in Boston. You've got you've got Harvard, MIT, Northeastern, um, or, or the BAC for architecture programs." And she just felt that MIT was a better fit for me. only school i applied to here in boston um i kind of jokingly say i was too poor to move um and i remember (laughs) you know i remember um the new year's eve i think it was 1998 1999 it must have been 1998 um, because i went three semesters at the bac um i was at the firm's office the lights on and i was trying to complete my application because it was due I think on January 1st or January 2nd. Yeah. And um, I was just pulling together anything I could, filling out all the forms. And um, it's the only school I applied to. And somehow, by the grace of <laughs> God, the universe, I got a call, um, you know, a couple months later from uh, the professor who was in charge of that year's incoming MARC uh, one student. And um, she said that I'd like to offer you a slot. And in that class, there were, I think, 17 of us, 17 or 18 of us. And then Mm -hmm. um, um, that's really why MIT. And, um, you know, after I was accepted, it was funny. I I called my parents. and I was ecstatic. I was like, you know, is this a mistake? But my mom said, you know, I don't know what this means, but you sound happy. So I'm I'm glad you got in. <laughs> True Midwestern kind of perspective of where MIT sits um within <laughs> architecture schools. But um it's a great experience, you know. Uh obviously my cohorts were amazing students. Um and it was basically just trying to hang on for dear life as I rode this kind of train for three and a half years at MIT. Um very high caliber thinkers. Um, and it's just an interesting place. I, 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 I survived. I, I got out of there. I survived. I had some very good um, friendships that came out of it and um, yeah, here I am today. So. Was
1: there a class or an instructor there that influenced you and in your career path during your time there?
0: You know, um, it's an interesting question. I'm sure MIT's development office doesn't want to hear this. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I would say that there were two professors that I, I, I like to say I had my I did my best work with them. And I think that's because they I have a tendency to get stuck, you know, and overthink. And these were professors that were like, you just okay, you've got a couple options, now just do it and move mm-hmm. forward. So one was Anne Pendleton-Julian. Um, she's no longer there. Um, and I think she's at the University of Ohio now. But she, I, I had her for my first studio, one of the best projects I've ever done. It was a little rough around the edges in terms of you know, um, drawings, but just in terms of thinking. Um, and then I had her for my thesis. And the same. I think she just was an amazing thinker. Or is an amazing thinker. Um, and then in MIT was developing a landscape program at the time. And Ann Wiston Spern uh, was another person, even though I didn't have a landscape background, or that wasn't my course of study. She was just an amazing thinker. Mm-hmm. And um, I respected her for um her caliber of thought that she brought to the classroom. And um, how to question things, and so those are two people that I would say that I I really uh, have fond memories of working with. Um, however, I, and I say this honestly, and I haven't sugarcoated this with any of the administration that afterwards. I think my biggest regret after leaving MIT was I just didn't have a good mentor while I was there, and someone that would take me under their wing and say you know, you need to be thinking about X, Y, and Z. Um, Mm -hmm. This is the next step. Um, Have you thought about this? And just sit me down and be a a mentor to me. And, you know, at the BAC, I've always tried, when I've worked as a professor there, adjunct professor, I've always tried to extend myself to the students and be a mentor to them. And not just want them as labor for a project, you know, a pet project that I'm working on and really tell them honestly, you know, you need to know this stuff. This this is the this is what employers want when you get out, you know, you need to be billable. You need to have skill and it's not just about you're not going to be designing when you get out of school. I mean, unless you're a wunderkind of some sort. Um and this is what will get you a job, and um, I, I just didn't have that when I was um, at MIT, and um, that's that's the one kind of regret that I have. But you know, times passed. I'm over it, and um, <laughs> move on.
1: <laughs> now you mentioned a few things about what will get you employed. You were working while you were at MIT. What was that experience like to be working in? What sort of lessons did you learn about the profession while you were earning your degree?
0: Well, let me back up a little bit. And you know, I had mentioned the at, at the Boston Architectural College, you have to work. It's a little different now. But back then, to get, to get federal student aid and be considered a full-time student, you had to have a job, work during the day, and then take classes at night. Um, while I was at the BEC, it's the, the worst grades of my entire academic <laughs> career. <laughs> you know, just trying, I was on the T, you know, studying for an exam or something. It's just, it's a long haul. And what I've always said about, as an now that I have my own practice, I mean, I don't have employees. Um, I'm a solo practitioner, but I've always said of, uh, BAC graduates. They're incredibly tenacious people. They are self-starters. And if they get through the BAC program, um, they have the experience under their belt. but they're just incredibly motivated people and talented at the same time. And so they really bridge this practice, kind of the creative uh, design side as well. Um, and I would put them up against any of the big schools, to be honest with you, across the nation. Um, when I was at MIT, so I was working for a small residential firm when I was at uh, the BAC. Um, and I, st- I continued to work with them. Um, <laughs> and I would come in once a week and um, pester them and do their billing. I think they just wanted to keep, a, keep in touch with me more than anything. And after about the First year, I basically said, I can't do this anymore. It was incredibly, incredibly tough. It was wonderful because I left because MIT was a fully immersive academic experience. It was a good palate cleanser. You know, it's like there's a real world out here and you have to operate in that. And um, it's not just this beautiful graduate school experience. Um, So there was always that tinge of reality you know, that was, um, that I balanced my academic career with. But after the end of about a year, I had to kind of say, you know what, I just can't do this anymore, you know? Um, and it wasn't like I was working on projects. I was really kind of administrative staff at that point, but I'm still in touch with um, that firm. I'm still in touch with many of the colleagues that I, you know, some of them are my best friends. I just got married and, you know, there's a handful that um, still came to the wedding after 20 plus years so, um, of knowing them and being in Boston. So um, it, it, it was a good experience, but it's tough. It's really, really tough.
1: Yeah. So. Well, then after you finished MIT, you worked for some other firms. What role did you fill at those firms beyond just the accounting side that you did at MIT? Did you, did you get a chance to grow and do some more things?
0: (laughs) The one thing I learned is there are very few architects who like to do administrative things. (laughs) So hire good administrators. Um, so I worked, the economy wasn't the best in 2021, 22 when I graduated. Um, and uh, there were slim pickings. And again, I was not ready to move across the country in any way. I wanted to stay in Boston and kind of experience Boston in a non-academic way, because that's really the only way I had kind of functioned at the time. Um, I went and worked for a small residential design firm, um, flew under the radar. Uh, it's called or it was called Veneco Limited it's since closed its doors. The founder retired um, and we worked on custom residential projects. Um, and um, I, it was really a great way to be introduced to the residential um, profession in architecture. You know, I jokingly tell people it wasn't until I'd been there for a year or two that I understood that there were Kitchen cabinet stock sizes, you know, three (laughs) inch increments, because we just did everything custom from scratch. And if we needed a sixteenth of an inch scooched over that way or a 120, you know, 132nd, that that's what we did. And I really was introduced to um contractors who had the highest level of craftsmanship, um, project management. Um high quality caliber clients. I was very, very spoiled. And, but I learned what beautiful materials were like to work with and how you detail them. And because in many cases, you know, money was no object. And, um, but I also learned how the contractor client architect designer triangulation kind of, uh, brought you a really really good project and it's much more enjoyable for everybody and so um I just knew no different and so when I started to work for some other firms at the time um I was like isn't this the way you guys do things (laughs) and I was like no there are other models out there and I just didn't learn them and so when I started my own practice, I just reverted back to that wonderful experience that I had. And that's really what I have brought into my own practice to date. So.
1: why did you decide to go out on your own?
0: Um, <laughs> all these questions, I think, how, how should I professionally respond to that? Or how can I <laughs> respond to that? Um, a couple of reasons. Um, you know, growing up in a family business, you're not used to being an employee. Um, and it's, I'm just being very frank about it. You know, our, our holiday dinner table discussions were dad, did you get that contract out? Um, you know, what's the schedule look like next week? And so we were responsible for our performance and being in charge and not answering to anybody really, but mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that was just ingrained in us. I felt very comfortable about that aspect of a business. And again, very fortunate, you know, um, I know uh, it led me not to ever want employees. Um, and so when I went out on my own, I said, um, I need to do this myself because I saw my bro- young younger brother and older brother, they both have their own businesses. Uh, my younger brother's in, um, he's a, Computer networking firm. Really, don't know what he does. To be honest with you. <laughs> but um, you know, they both had their own businesses, and I jokingly say I was the slacker. I didn't have my own business, and mm. um, Greg, my older brother, had taken over the family uh, business in Wisconsin. And um, it had gotten to the point where I was doing moonlighting uh, work, as we all do. Um, and actually, when I was at CBT. They were like, we understand you're going to do this. This is how people kind of progress in the, in the field to some degree. Just don't put our names on anything. And so it had gotten to the point where I couldn't take those calls any longer, you know, in the stairwell. Um, I needed to be on site um, for site meetings. I couldn't do it before work. Because you know, I was asking c- contractors or clients or consultants to meet me on site at like 7 a.m. or 6.30 a.m. And it just uh, was getting too burdensome. Um, And I had two really solid, rather large projects already that I was doing moonlighting. And um, as we know in residential work, people think that when the finishes start going in, it's like, oh, I can take a breather. And it's actually, you just ramp it up to another level (laughs) of intensity. And I said to the client, I said, you know, I've been handling this so far, you know, kind of dabbling around the edges of my full-time job. And I said, it's only going to get more intense. She was like, no, it's not. I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, that was one impetus. I had two really good projects. Um, and my partner, um, now husband, um, said to me, you know what? It's now or never. You know, you're never going to be in this position again to go out on your own. And, um, he was right and he supported me hundred percent. And he's like, just go for it. You can always go find another job. You're talented enough and people want you, uh, you know, on their teams. And so I just thought, all right, here we go. And now I'm addicted to working for myself. I don't think I could ever get back on the commuter train in the morning <laughs> again and, um, and do it. I, I love, I work from home. The dog is at my feet. I'm in my slippers. Um, I just have bought myself a lifestyle, you know. This I took a week off to go down to Texas to visit Rolando's side of the family, and um, you know the joke is: is your HR department going to let you go? And it's like, I think they will. So <laughs> <laughs> let me let me
1: talk to him over here.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I, as I left and I was preparing, you know, all my projects are in the cloud. Um, I've got my iPhone. I've got my laptop. Um, and I just tell people, you know, my response time is going to be a little slow because I'm, you know, visiting family and stuff, but I basically can keep my business treading water, um, for that week while I'm gone. And it's really, a lot of it's just done on my iPhone. Um, if I have to throw a drawing, you know, get a drawing out or something, I'll fire up the laptop, but it's really incredible what technology's allowed us to do um, as sole practitioners. Um, one other thing was very critical in letting me, um, not letting me, but was really in, um, a support in letting me go out on my own. And that was at the time Obamacare came out and I could mm-hmm. buy my own health insurance. And, um, because up to that point, you know, Rolando and I weren't married. We weren't domestic partners. Um, and I was gonna have to buy health care insurance or go uninsured. Mm-hmm. And once the Massachusetts Health Insurance Exchange came out, I at least knew that I had basic coverage for myself. And that was just a big burden off my mind and off my shoulders. And um, you know, so when people say that Obamacare is an economic driver, I firmly believe that. Um, because it allows people to uncouple or decouple themselves from that work relationship is where you're going to get your benefits or your health care from. And um, yeah, it just, um, that was kind of the last, there were a number of linchpins and they all just kind of came together in a perfect storm. And uh, here I am. So does that, (laughs) does that answer your question? (laughs) Absolutely. You
1: think that Growing up with parents that ran their own businesses, having your brothers run their own businesses, do you think that allowed you or gave you the confidence that uh, you were ready to uh, run your own firm?
0: Um, I mean, there are always, you know, there's always self-doubt. What am I going to do in this situation? Blah, blah, blah. But I think what it gave me was, a, so my father, you know, and we can always look back on our parents and our relationships with them with some sort of criticism, but he really um, instilled in me that it's okay to say no. It's okay to say no to a client. It's okay to say to a client, you're not doing the right thing. And it's okay to say, to walk away from a client who, um, you know, and I think those are all kind of wrapped up in this negative, like negative part of doing business. But when I fired my first client as an architect, I, I, you know, my knees were shaking. I was like, what are the ramifications of this going to be? And I said, no, this is not how I want to work. And I told you that. And so you can't change the rules of the game midstream, mid project. So sayonara. And, you know, we had discussions around that. Like, why do you want to do this? But I was okay with saying no. The other thing my father instilled in me is um, you know they, they weren 't the cheapest heating and cooling contractors, and they had a very specialty niche and when we think about marketing all these marketing programs it 's like find your niche, find your niche and he did he said i 'm not doing any new construction i 'm only doing replacements, my margins are higher i 'm um, in and out uh, in three, four, five, six, maybe a week maybe you know so he understood what made him money and um, he was okay saying no to certain segments of the market because they uh, either didn't fit the financial model or they didn't fit the um, his personality of how he wanted to interact. So when he would work with, if a client came to him and said, um, we're building a new house, we want you to do the HVAC, he'd say, that's fine, but I'm not signing up with the subcontract or I'm not signing up with your GC my contract is with you directly. And that saved him. And, and I know GCs don't want to do that. <laughs> but it really, he's like, I'm doing you a favor, client, basically, by doing this, because this isn't my business model. And if you want me to do the work, this is how I'm going to work. He's like, if you don't want me to, if, if you can't handle that, or the GC doesn't like that relationship, um, that's fine. I've got plenty of other work over here. The other thing, he wasn't afraid to charge his work. And so, you know, in any business, you're going to have somebody at some point who's going to be like, all you did was change the X, Y, and Z parts. And I can go over here and get it from the big box to- store and put it on myself. And my dad was very <laughs> professional. He'd say, well, then why didn't you do that? And um, he would have people come in and say, you know, you've charged me too much. And he would just very simply say, if you think I've overcharged you, then you just pay me what you think that job was worth, and I would say nine times out of ten, people would pay the entire invoice in full, and so he he stood his ground um, and said, "I'm charging what it takes for me to keep my doors open and to pay my employees and to give them a living, pay them a living wage and he never he never backed down from that, you know. People would push back and say, why are you charging this much for a boiler change out when I can go get it over here for this much less? He'd say, I'm charging you what it takes to do the job. That was his response. And I I could I, I wouldn't have to lift my head up from my desk when people would come in and I would hear them at the counter because I knew what he was going to say. And um, he'd he say, if you don't want me to do it, uh, you know, good luck. Uh, we'll service it. You know when it breaks, and um, we'll come and make repairs to it or clean it and get you on a yearly. But if you don't want us to change it out, you know that's your prerogative. So um, that's kind of a long way to say I felt comfortable on the business side of things, and I've noticed colleagues who have thought about going out you know, on on their own as well, and that was a real gift that my parents gave to me. Um, I understood. Um, just, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm this miraculous business person, but by any means, but at least I understood, um, the ability to say no, because I've gotten into situations where people have pushed back and they said, um, we'd like to lessen your fee. And I'd say, well, that's fine, but this is what you won't get. Right. We'll change my scope of services. Or if they, if they whittle it away far enough that. It's not a project that I want to be involved in. I'll just say I'm sorry. I think you have the wrong uh, architect, and let me help you find somebody else. You know, I know somebody that I think kind of works in that methodology or has that process, and um, I'll introduce you instead of leaving them kind of, you know, at the curb. So, um, yeah, I, I I really feel comfortable talking numbers with people. Um, you know, and I have colleagues that I use that I've known for 20 years here in Boston, registered architects who don't like the business side of things. I'm like, fine, you know, I'll be the front man <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, we'll work behind the scenes and let's do some fun schematic design together or we'll do the existing conditions together. You bill me through your, you know, and we come up with these great partnerships, but they don't want, be involved in the client uh, side of things. And mm-hmm. I was like, that's fine. I'll do
1: it. So Perfect. Now you've had your own firm for almost eight years now. How mm-hmm. is
0: your... Oh my gosh, it's been that long. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. So how has how your personal experiences, such as travel and cultural explorations and deep love of gardening, I saw, shaped mm. your philosophy and approach to your practice?
0: Yeah. Um, the so one thing I didn't mention when I was actually thinking about grad school, I was thinking about becoming a landscape architect first and foremost. Um, my parents had done renovations on their house in Wisconsin. And of course, most projects, you know, the landscaping is cut at the end. And so I ended up while I was working for them, uh, or in the family business, I did a lot of the landscaping in, on the property myself. And I really fell in love with gardening. Uh, respect for the environment, which I had never really developed up to that point. And um, so that's really what I thought I was going to get into. But none of the schools that I was really looking at um, had a landscape architecture program. Um, I so when I lived and after I graduated grad school, I lived I had a condo in the Fenway uh, area and um i actually had a victory garden um along the muddy river and um so i even out here i brought that love of just being outside my hands in the soil and watching things grow and tend into it um in my practice uh and i really got rolando to love it as well <laughs> 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 it's like you either Uh, enjoy this or we're not going to spend much time together um no in my practice i really i strive to get people to think about landscape and what they're going to see outside or through the window or the aperture um very soon if they don't have a landscape architect on you know or have the funds for it um I really try to frame views. Um, I try to frame views through space. Um, You know, because in Boston, a lot of the existing architecture is some of it's rather petite in scale. (laughs) Um, And so that connection between inside, outside, even during the winter months, I think is, you know, you add another room to your space, at least we do, when the weather is, is nice and we sit out on our patio um so i really try strive to bring in that connection um very seldom do i just see a project where it's going to be just unroll the sod up to the foundation you know there's some there's some love or there's some respect for our environment for most um from most of my clients Um, so I really enjoy bringing that in. What we did personally, so I live in uh, an area of Boston called West Roxbury. It's kind of, it's the most suburban of Boston. Um, It's kind of the farthest out that you can go um, before becoming Needham or Dedham or Brookline. Um, And so we have lots. And when I met Rolando, he had just purchased the house maybe six months prior and it was all grass, irrigation. And, um, it was getting difficult for me to go back and forth between the Fenway and, uh, West Roxbury. And so I finally established, <laughs> um, a home in West Roxbury. And I was like, you know what? Let's, let's make this our place. And, uh, we took out all the grass in the backyard. Um, dear friend of mine who's a landscape architect, all native plantings. Um, we did the same in the front, although there is a little patch of grass. It takes me about 10 minutes to mow with an electric lawnmower. <laughs> um, and he's a scientist. And the first thing he noticed um, after the plants were put in was the array of insects and bees that suddenly populated our yard and weren't in anybody else's yard. It was like, you know, and our friend, Jenna Johnson who was the landscape architect who helped us, um, she said, all you have to do is plug into the system and they'll come. <laughs> so, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So um, I try to practice what I preach. And we've really tried to call out non-native um, and have created um, an environment. I mean, we sit out in the backyard and we watch uh multiple hummingbirds actually just fly between the monarda the bee balm from the front yard to the backyard the front yard to the backyard and stop on their way to certain vines um and then <laughs> i'm getting too much into this meal, but there's a strip of we live on a gravel road on a corner and it's an unpaved road and uh it leads to our driveway but um There's a 10-foot strip along the neighboring school's property that is just kind of, people have called it throwaway land. It's where people take their grass clippings and throw it, and it's just piled up over the years. And we took it over, and um, whenever we need to divide plants, um, because I hate throwing away live vegetation, I either give it away or um, we call it our orphanage. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we throw it over there and we've started to kind of develop an offshoot of our yard that's not as well tended. It's a little more as our my friend Jenna Johnson calls it, blousey. Mm-hmm. Um, it's untended. You know, we go in the spring, kind of call out some some of the weeds or the more invasive stuff. And then maybe at the end of the year and you just kind of let it do its thing. And if you can't survive over there, you're not going to survive. So we took yeah. out our irrigation, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So all of our neighbors have irrigation and uh, we don't, we just all of our natives now have deep tap roots and uh, we just abandoned the irrigation system. Nice. Yeah. So maybe, yeah. So that's how I like to think about, um, landscape, the outdoors, gardening. Um, in my mind, it, I prefer a much more natural uh, aesthetic, but I do get, I understand, you know, not everyone can kind of handle that from a design standpoint. And, um, but I like to think about low maintenance or no maintenance. Well, there's no such thing as no maintenance when it comes to a landscape, um, or you just walk away from it but um yeah and we've recently had to actually hire some help just because there's so much material that we're dealing with um but they get it we were looking for someone that's not going to shape baseballs out of our inkberry or (laughs) basketballs you know Mm -hmm. and um calls it soil and not dirt (laughs) right and so um we've had a little help lately but um yeah, I, I love it. It's the only way I can explain working in the yard is that it's my therapy. You know, for me to go out and put on my headphones, have the dog wandering around the yard, and me pulling out weeds is—it's actually therapy for me. And yeah. so uh, the world just kind of melts away.
1: And you mentioned earlier about mentoring and something that you do as a professor at the Boston Architectural College. And you're also involved in the Boston Society of Architects and the Greater Boston Business Council, Big Brothers, Bis- Big Sisters, as I mentioned earlier. What does it mean to you to give back to the profession in that way, but also to your community in general?
0: Um, it means a lot. Um, I was raised, um, all of my um, education has been through uh, has been Catholic education, you know, uh, middle school, um, high school wasn't, but my undergrad was at Saint John's University in Minnesota. Um, so, you know, the 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 vein that runs through that obviously is um, care for others and uh, bring that to the table. So there, there's always been a high level of community service instilled within me. Um, you know, I was a boy scout as a kid, you know, I know that's not fashionable anymore for whatever reason, but, um, it was all about service to your community. Um, and so that was just what I saw through my parents. Um, you know, my parents were always involved in their church. Um, my mother to this day is. You know, she's president of the local chapter of the Saint Vincent de Paul Society. You know, home visits to um, the economically disadvantaged, making sure that you know their organization is getting the money and funds out to the to who needs it. Um. So, you know, when I came, you know, for IDP, we have to do some sort of community service, right? And so I was just looking for something that wasn't religion-based at the time, um, and my brothers, big sisters kind of came up on the radar, and um, it was a really good experience. You know, I'd never had all my brother, we were all like 18 months apart, you know, good Irish Catholic family, <laughs> and so I never had a sibling that was much younger. We were the youngest cousins in the family, um, so... I just thought it would be interesting to kind of mentor a kid and you know so back in 2002 i met josh he was nine years old uh he actually aged out of the program at 21 um and so i was with them that entire time and um that was a it was a very interesting experience a very eye-opening experience that not everyone had the same opportunities or upbringing that i did um you know even in a rural community um you know plymouth is all of 8000 so um it's always been important to me and um i think from you know if you're going to complain about something you know be the change right and so yeah. um it's not that i was complaining about the, <laughs> the BSA, but um People reached out to me and said, you know, we thought you'd be good at this, and so I'm co-chair of the residential design committee with Ellen Perko of CBT. Um, uh, Yeah, so when it's you know it's flattering when somebody says, you know, we think you'd be good in this this job or this position for a while, Um, and I think there's also when service has been instilled in you and you start to see people struggling about which direction to go, you know, you say, Hey, I have a suggestion if you're you're willing to listen and this is what didn't work for me and why, or this is what worked for me and why. And so here are your choices at this kind of crossroad in your life and your career. And these are the pitfalls. These are the, you know, uh, the benefits of certain decisions. And so I'll be here to be a sounding board and, um, um yeah. I just again it goes back to I never had a true true mentor who took me under their wing.
1: Yeah. You know? And now you have the opportunity to give back to that.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, looking back on your career so far, how has the reality, of the profession, been different than you thought it would be when you first started?
0: Um like first started my firm or just first yeah, started first started
1: in working in the career and going to college you know mm-hmm. learning about the profession has it been yeah. that different than you thought or maybe expected it would be
0: um well i think the immersion into the field was slow and steady that you just kind of adapted mm-hmm. um i think what i see now is people students think they're going to be designers every day right they're going to sit down with their sketch pad and paper and come at a professional project design um, challenge like you did in school and some people do some firms are based on that but i i I I I I look at it as a profession and what that has meant is that there's a certain amount of administrative how do you organize information and communicate it to a team to a client to a contractor to a site to a sub that wasn't spelled out at the beginning you know mm-hmm. it was about a design problem that you're trying to bring a solution to and um, I think after three and a half years of school, because I had to do the three and a half year track, um, that's ingrained in me. You know, I know how I enter a design problem and I really instill that in my students. You know, you know how you tick, know what gets you into a project so that you can do it very quickly when you've got a client because they want you to get in very quickly. And it's far and few between where a client comes to you as you probably know. And they say, oh, we just want to dream a little bit. (laughs) 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 And we don't care how many hours you spend on that. And so I think that's been kind of the most challenging part that this is a business. I've got to pay bills. Got to keep the lights on. Um, And um, you have to be profitable. Um, So, I th- you know I think we all are challenged with that. We want we're we're creative people. We like to bring design solutions to a to a problem, and we're not always allowed to do that the way we want to. But I think the skill is the, you know how do you solve the problem that meets a budget, that meets a timeline, that meets you know all sorts of other parameters, and that I think you know makes projects even richer.
1: Yeah. Well, Daniel, I want to thank you for sharing your experience and passion for what you do and how you do Mm -hmm. it. We're going to take a short break, and after we'll explore more about your experience with the Mac and Apple products right after this. Inside the Apple Studio is also supported by Arc IT. As business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. For many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. It's not a pleasant experience, and clearly I wasn't dealing with an IT provider like Arc IT. Arc IT is a different kind of company. They specialize in serving Mac and PC-based architecture and design firms. This means they understand your Mac-related challenges of keeping your personal and your business data separate and have experience providing solutions when certain software providers stop supporting macOS. Combine this with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, solid disaster recovery and backup solutions, and enterprise-grade security management. And yet, all of the above are just table stakes for a solid IT company. Arc IT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, Budgeting and integrating new technology into your business. All of this sounds expensive, right? Not with ArcIT. Because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry, their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and publishes its pricing on its website. Your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to Boris, ArcIT's founder and CEO, for a free consultation. Go to getarcit.com and click Work With Us. Welcome back. Daniel and I had such a great conversation that this episode is being split into two parts. Be sure to follow the show and catch the next episode where we discuss his Mac journey and wrap up with the 10 questions. If you have comments on the show, You can find me on Twitter at N-P-A-N-N or at Apple for Arc. That's Apple, F-O-R-A-R-C-H. You can also comment on the Apple for Architects Facebook page and join the Apple for Architects Facebook group. Inside the Apple Studio is a production of Apple for Architects at appleforarchitects.com.